My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Rarely is a biographer and subject so perfectly matched as are Rob Kenner and Nipsey Hussle. The marathon don't stop. The life and times of Nipsey Hussle is getting well-deserved rave reviews. His cradle-to-grave story of the evolution of Nipsey, from gangbanger to rapper to mogul, philanthropist, and social activist, reminding us of the great loss incurred when he was shot to death in front of his beloved Crenshaw retail outpost, Marathon Clothing. As we speak, the media rush is on to tell this compelling story of a superstar who could have left the hood and walled himself in Calabasas with the rest of rap royalty, but this was not his path. With a Netflix documentary, several podcasts, and numerous book proposals in the works, the process of deification is on and likely to continue. An icon taken too soon, like Biggie, Tupac, and a growing list of fallen heroes. As a founding editor of Quincy Jones' Vibe magazine, Rob is perfectly positioned to tell this story. During his run at Vibe, he edited and wrote cover and feature stories on iconic cultural figures ranging from Tupac to Barack Obama. Full disclosure, I am proud to say my son Nissim, who met Rob when he was an intern at Mass Appeal, and Rob was its executive editor, worked as a research assistant on this important contribution to our cultural history. Welcome, Rob Kenner. Thanks, David. That was a wonderful intro, and I, I, I'm humbled. This whole week has been a humbling experience for me. The outpouring of support and love for Nip does not surprise me, but when it's directed toward the work of my hands and heart is a very humbling and powerful experience. Well, you say it's not surprising, but at the same time, he never achieved the commercial recognition or mainstream appeal of a lot of the figures that we mentioned earlier, Biggie Tupac, for example. So to some extent, it is surprising, right? Because, you know, who was this guy? Why do we care? Well, that was the question a lot of people asked themselves when this enormous memorial service took place at the Staples Center and it was nationally broadcast. Barack Obama wrote a letter of tribute and Stevie Wonder sang and Snoop Dogg delivered a eulogy. Minister Farrakhan was present. The only other cultural figures to have that kind of send-off have been Michael Jackson and Kobe Bryant later. It was somewhat of a shock to people who were not paying attention to Nipsey's movement. And that's why I thought it was so important to write this book, which I actually started before the tragedy of March 31st. But it was clear to me then and now that Nipsey Hussle is one of the most important and misunderstood cultural figures in history. And this book is my contribution as a lifelong music journalist to lay the foundation of understanding why he is so important. And a big part, I think, of why he didn't 
get that attention was because he was so localized in his own vision of what needed to be done in his community in Crenshaw. So it was a very much of an L.A. story for a really long time and never really crossed over to the East Coast where the media empire sits. Right. Well, that is definitely true that the New York rap cognoscenti were mostly ignoring Nip's movement, but his movement was worldwide. He flew to Japan to perform before he was signed to any deals with any record labels. And he toured Europe. He performed in England, you know, with just him and Fats running around doing spot gigs. He understood from early on that he could make direct connections with strong supporters using social media. He was very ahead of his time in terms of his understanding of technology, and he used that to its fullest potential. The Marathon Don't Stop, the book's title is significant in itself because most young rappers looking for the quick money, they're just trying to make the quick deal, get paid, move on to the next thing. And that was not his story. How did that evolve? Originally, that wasn't primary on his mind, but then he developed this marathon theory of life. There's an amazing interview that young Nipsey Hussle does outside the Get Your Money Right Summit, which was a financial empowerment seminar set up by Russell Simmons. And one year it took place at UCLA and a lot of young up-and-coming rappers at the time, gravitated to this event. So there's this video interview on YouTube, which is billed as Nipsey Hussle's first interview, question mark, and it's actually not his first, but one of the first. The legendary Davy D just approaches a young man who he really doesn't know anything about. And he says, you're a young up-and-coming rapper. Why aren't you wearing all the crazy bling and chains? He's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he asks the question and Nip replies, well, all that stuff is cool for the image and the ego, but you know, I'd rather use my money and invest in some land, some real estate, some assets that would appreciate. And David, he's like, what? Would you say that again, please? And he was so impressed with this young man's business acumen. I think Nip could have been giving a lecture at the Get Your Money Right Summit at that point. And this was very early in his run. And while they're speaking, you can see a young Kendrick Lamar walk by in the background, a young J-Rock and top dog family is, is all there. This was an early sign that Nipsey was ahead of his time with his business ideas. And, you know, he really was a hustler from early. But I think the marathon concept came as a way of inspiring himself and consoling himself even from the setbacks and the obstacles that were placed in his path. And, you know, he was very proud by the time I sat down with him during the Victory Lap album rollout, that he had accomplished this goal the hard way. As he put it, we took the stairs. You know, he didn't take the express elevator. There was nobody that co-signed him, no megastar with multi-platinum status that said, you know, take this guy on the fast ride to the top. He did it himself with his family-owned business, with his close friends in the all-money-in, no-money-out label. And what they accomplished was really remarkable. As you mentioned, he did not turn his back on the community. He did not head off to Calabasas. He stayed 10 toes down in the Crenshaw district, the same parking lot where he used to sell his mixtapes hand-to-hand. He and his brother eventually bought that entire strip mall and built businesses that employed the community, 
that offered legitimate employment to his longtime friends, some of whom had criminal records and might not have been able to get legitimate employment. But for some reason, the LAPD had it in for him and they kept harassing and raiding him when he was doing nothing wrong. They accused the place of being a gang hangout. The book gets into some of that context and places Nipsey in context of hip-hop history and L.A. history and American history. I try to explain how this whole gang culture grew up in L.A. and what the source of it is and why it was unavoidable for a young man growing up in that neighborhood to become at least exposed to gang culture. One of the things I was wrestling with in the book while I was writing it was to understand how such a brilliant mind, someone who could build his own computer in high school and had such forward-thinking ideas about business and marketing and community uplift, would get involved with the Rolling 60s. It's a complicated question, and it caused me to question all the things that I've been programmed to believe as an American kid that grew up in America on the diet of disinformation and media spin about gangster rap and boys in the hood and all of that stuff. There's a lot more to it. A lot of people had never heard of the Proud Boys until they almost overthrew the United States <laughs> government a couple of months ago. And, uh, you know, that's a gang. That's a dangerous gang. One of the founders of the Proud Boys was one of the founders of Vice Media. So it's important to understand who the real gangsters are. And when you look into the history of Los Angeles, you learn about groups like the Spook Hunters, who were white gangs that had jackets that had a caricature of a black person being lynched as the logo. And they were running around LA harassing black kids on their way to school, harassing black families who dared to move outside of the neighborhoods that were prescribed for them. There was an official policy called redlining, which prevented families from getting loans and insurance. They couldn't buy a home outside of certain neighborhoods, or if they applied for a mortgage in the approved Black neighborhoods, it was very hard to get financing to own that property. So they had to live paycheck to paycheck, paying rent, and couldn't really build well. All of this was stuff that Nipsey understood very well, that Aramis Askedom, before he was even known as Nipsey Hustle, understood very well. And that's why he knew it was very important for him and his brother to buy back the block, to own their own musical recordings, to control their destiny. And that's what the slogan, all money and no money out really means. That's actually one of my favorite parts of the book, Life and Times. So the Times, you referenced the Rolling 60s, which for our audience who maybe hasn't read the book and that familiar, refers to the Crips and Bloods and the whole gang situation there. And I must say, for me, it was exactly how you described it. I, for the first time, understood what it means to be in a gang of that kind in Los Angeles, because for me, it was like just a gang, you know, troublemakers, people up to no good. And to realize that this is, has a long history with families, entire families embedded in this experience who have grown up as Bloods or Crips, how the kids go to school together, but once they reach a certain age, they have to decide where they, where to, what are you going to be, a Blood or a Crip, to the extent that this becomes so much the fabric of that culture is amazing. 
And that it also has positive elements to it as well. It's not just gangbanging. It's also community and people looking out for each other. And in many ways, I think even people like me who, you know, are not of color and always been loving this culture are enamored by that whole idea of community that exists in the black world, whether it's hip hop or graffiti or fashion or wherever it is, that there is this level of association that's very hard to find outside of that world. Yeah, no question. And the other thing to remember about Los Angeles gang culture is that the essays, the Mexican gangs, predate the Black gangs also. And there's a very huge presence there as well. And that's what the record FDT was all about with YG and Nipsey Hussle impeaching Donald Trump. Well, fuck, we're allowed to say fuck here, so we'd say fuck Donald Trump, right? That's yeah, what that well, the record for. is officially titled FDT. I'm not scared to okay. say fuck Donald Trump either, but, <laughs> you know, they wanted to get it in and play it on the radio, which most radio stations were too scared to do. They saw candidate Trump dividing the nation, demonizing Mexicans, throwing black kids out of his rallies, being endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan. And they recognized that this was a threat. And, you know, NIP and YG were trying to unite the divided streets of Los Angeles. The original intention behind forming organizations like the Slossons and later the Black Panthers was, was unity and strength. And because they were seen as a threat to the status quo, the government targeted those leaders like Bunchy Carter, like Fred Hampton. And they were wiped out. And from the ashes of the Panthers, you know, the Crips emerged to fill a void. And eventually the Bloods were a response to the power of the Crips. And rivalries formed, whether intentionally, deliberately instigated from the outside or just internal factions. And it became more like a block-by-block -block neighborhood rivalry thing. And I think the NIP was astute enough to understand the history and educated himself, although he didn't finish high school. He was a brilliant mind who educated himself and all those around him recommended reading lists to everyone he knew at all times. And he understood that there was an intentional plan to dismantle these organizations. And I think he wanted to bring gang culture back to closer to its original purpose. You mentioned before that there is often a generational component to being part of gang culture in Los Angeles. And it's important to remember that that was not the case for Hermes Ascadome. His father was from Eritrea. He was not born into the 60s. He was born in that neighborhood and he lived there his, his whole life. But he made a conscious decision to be part of that organization for reasons that I try to explore in the book. And as I mentioned before, he's a brilliant mind. He could have done a lot of different things. He wanted to provide other options for other brilliant kids in that neighborhood, which is why he built Vector 90 and a science, technology, engineering, and mathematics lab for, for kids like him who would like to build computers and study space exploration and things like that. But for him, hip-hop was the way to empower himself. And he loved rap, and rap was his passion from childhood. So, you know, thank God for hip-hop. Hip-hop is awesome. You mentioned that he was Eritrean, and a big part of his uh, life was going back to that country for a three-month period, and coming back, you described him as a changed person, that something had happened while he was there. 
he described himself as a changed person when I spoke with him. He said it was a life-changing experience for him. And the reasons for that are many. Credit has to be given to his father, Dawit Askadon, who recognized that his sons were at a point in their development as young men where it would be important for them to get back in touch with that side of their culture and to connect for the first time with their family who they'd never met in Eritrea. At first, uh, Nip was a little hesitant to be away for three whole months at that stage in his life. He had a lot of things going on. He was starting to get involved in street life in LA and he thought maybe two weeks would be enough, but his father was adamant that, no, we're going to really stay with your family. You're going to meet your grandmother on that side. You're going to meet your cousins and we need time to move around the country and soak it all up. And so Hermes and Sam and their father flew out there and you can see there's some videos on YouTube where you see the dress code of the two young men from LA plunked down in Eritrea and they look like they're straight off the block. They have the oversized white tees and they have the the caps. They're very much themselves. LA kids in Africa, you can see that they were bringing their culture to Eritrea, but Eritrean culture soaked into them. And some of the things that Nib talked about was the power of seeing a country where all the authority figures looked like him and where culture encouraged respect for women tremendous emphasis on family. Everything stopped at midday. Schools would let out, businesses closed so that everyone would have a midday meal together. And he returned to LA with a strong sense of purpose and what hip hop refers to as knowledge of self. He just had a different appreciation for who he was. And he would talk about Eritrea as home, even though he really only made two trips there. His father kept him connected to the culture, would cook food from East Africa when they were spending time with him in LA. And Nipsey referred to his father as a freedom fighter. Eritrea and Ethiopia had a 30-year conflict, which actually is still Still a tragic situation. Similar to the way LA is divided, gang rivalries and things like that, Eritrean and Ethiopian culture is very similar in a lot of ways. And yet this brutal conflict has been going on. And if you peel back the history, you find that it has something to do with colonial incursion into this area and divisions that have built up. It's a complicated situation that I won't attempt to summarize, but Dewey Askadom was a very active person in the resistance in Eritrea. There was a period of time where famines were deliberately caused by the Ethiopian government towards Eritreans, just a lot of horrible brutality. So when Dweed Askinom came to LA, he was still involved with organizations to promote human rights in his homeland. I think all of that rubbed off on his sons, for sure. And Nipsey didn't do this all by himself because he had people who spotted him early on. I forget the name of this. Dexter Brown. Dexter Brown, exactly. The photographer who opened up his house and it turned it into a space for working creativity, yeah, which I think was an amazing contribution and fortunate for him. I'm very proud of the fact that Dexter Brown's story has never been told before he reached out to me after the book had been announced. I was not aware of him at all. He is shouted out in the thank yous of Crenshaw, of the Crenshaw mixtape, which is a very important release for Nip in a lot of ways. Dexter Brown 
heard that this was an unauthorized biography and was not going to be signed off on by record labels and management because there's always an attempt to control the narrative around someone who's being elevated, as you said, the process of deification. And so when Dexter became aware that this would be a journalistic account of Nip's life and legacy, and he checked me out and he decided I was trustworthy enough to share his story with, as you mentioned, Dexter was a photographer, born in Trinidad, educated at Howard, swimming coach, trained as a civil engineer. And he had a passion for art. And his wife was actually the art director at Rapalot Records, the great independent Houston rap label. So through all these combination of random factors, he ends up buying a house, he and his wife, in the neighborhood, in the Crenshaw district. And really has no idea where he is. He's just plunked down. And he might have been seen as a gentrifier, honestly, because he was not from the hood. But anyway, he's on the block cooking some curry chicken one day and Cuzzy Capone approaches him like, that smells good, what you cooking? And they get to talking and Dexter could feel that Cuzzy knew what was up on the block. And he said, you know, I'm a photographer and I want to photograph the real life in LA. Do you think you might be able to tell me where I could meet some real gang members and take some photos like that. And because he's like, well, I got news for you, man. You're in the heart of the 60s right now. <laughs> and, you know, pretty soon Dexter opened his home to Cuzzy. And then there was this skinny kid that would come around trying to sell bootleg software for computers. I mean, this was where Nip's head was at. He was brilliant, street hustler, tech savvy but also an aspiring rapper. And when he understood that there was music equipment in that house, he quickly gravitated. And as you mentioned, it was like his shelter from the streets and a creative center. And that was where he got the name Nipsey Hussle, actually, was in Dexter's house. And another aspect of his awareness is this whole subject of branding. He realized this is something I can do as well. And I can be a brand and I could charge a lot of money for my mixtape, just like a sneaker drop or something. Yep. And of course, he had no idea that anyone would pay for it. But it turned out that Jay-Z was an early supporter in that respect, as you write, buying 100 copies, I believe, of the mixtape for $100. So it was, on one hand, completely outrageous, yet very successful. And showed that he was really on point with regard to this whole subject of branding. Yeah, absolutely. Today, Nipsey's brilliant visionary strategy has become standard practice in the music industry. Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber now market their albums the same way. It's called a bundle, and they allow VIP fans to buy tickets to the next big tour and the new album a week before it comes out or things like that for an inflated price. And Nip understood that he had forged this passionate connection with his core fan base. And he believed that if he was able to present them with an exciting opportunity like access to a VIP show and physical copies of a limited edition CD for his Crenshaw tape, they would be, as he put it, proud to pay. And that insight was a game changer. He moved $100,000 worth of product the first night. And that concert, when he was performing for his 
intense fans is such an, a powerful moment when he comes out doing the song where he says this, that shit you waited for your whole fucking life. And it was really real what he, what he said. That was a, those words from the heart. The idea of Jay-Z and Nipsey t- to me brings up all kinds of questions of what is not necessarily right. I don't want to make one better or the other, but they have a diametrically opposed approach to entrepreneurialism. That's true. Right? Jay is very corporate. He's buying companies. He's working on that CEO level, whereas Nips was more on feet on the ground, local community from the bottom up. So there's a top down and then there's the bottom up. Part of it is Nipsey's critique of capitalism at the same time, right? He understood the structuralism of the problem that we have, that these things are embedded into our lives, that racism and all kinds of prejudices are built in. And in order to fight it, you have to do it yourself from the bottom up and create opportunities. And he decided to work in his community. Yeah. Given the results one is alive and one isn't. Is there really a future for anybody else to take the Nipsey's approach? Is this end this concept of trying to work within these hostile environments, potentially hostile at least, to make change on that level as opposed to more distance approach? I can you know, be successful. I could still help people. I could still reach out. But I don't really have to be in the hood in the way that Nipsey was. Well, yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, and everybody wishes that Nip had his bodyguards with him that day or had taken different decisions on March 31st, 2019. It's a gut punch to everyone who loved him and everyone who respected what he was doing and the whole city of Los Angeles in many ways has still not recovered from that tragic loss. I totally agree with you that Jay-Z's approach and Nips are completely different. Both of them understand the realities of racism and all the challenges of being a young black man in America. Both of them came up the hard way. We know Jay-Z's story. It's in his music. And his rise is very inspirational to a lot of people. He's a billionaire today, and he built a very powerful business. But he did not build Rock Nation in the Marcy Projects, although some of his day one friends are part of his business. As you mentioned, he's made a lot of alliances with organizations like the NFL and Budweiser. And there's nothing wrong with corporate connects, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But Nip had a different priority in terms of his approach. He, as you mentioned, was building everything, I would say, horizontally rather than vertically, right? He's vertically integrated in the sense of owning the creation of his music and the platforms that went out on and having the Marathon clothing store, which was integrating technology and merchandise and content in very visionary ways, but he wanted to build businesses in his community and stay involved to inspire other people. Will others hesitate to emulate him? I hope not. There are a whole generation of people inspired by Nipsey's example, not only to pursue hip-hop, but to pursue jobs in technology and marketing. I recently had a meeting with a group of professors at Howard University who are planning to teach the book, The Marathon Don't Stop, in a 
half a dozen different classes, ranging from criminal justice reform to marketing to African-American studies and literature. There's so many areas that Nip touched. And his example is much bigger than hip hop, much bigger than entertainment. As he founded the Vector 90 work sharing space, which had a science, technology, engineering, mathematics lab, he wanted the future kids like him to have other options. And hip hop is, is a, something he was passionate about, but not everybody needs to be a rapper. And I hope that Nip's example will be emulated. And I'm confident that it will be, actually. One of the people I interviewed for this book was a very bright student who went to school across the street from the Marathon store. There was a, a magnet school for very gifted young men and women from the community. And they all saw Nip standing in that parking lot day in and day out selling his mixtape. And the fact that a young Black man and his brother could own a business in the community was really unusual and inspiring to everyone. And those kids from that school who are very well educated and are going to have more options, more opportunities, God willing, they are all inspired and they want to prove that Nip was an inspirational figure and they're inspired by him to take things higher. And, and that's why this book is about a triumph and not a tragedy. Could you talk a little bit about how you met and, and the circumstances around that? Because you said you started the book actually before his death. We met in the offices of Vibe Magazine when he was on his early mixtape run. He was presenting Blow St. God No Name Volume 2. And when he came into the conference room to play his music, everyone in the room could feel his charisma, his personal magnetism and his energy, very personable, just connecting with everybody in the room and looking everyone in the eye. And, and the music was dope. The record that sticks with me is the Dre Jack and for Beats track on volume two, where he's flowing over the gin and juice beat. That's not a track that you play with. You have to sound like you know what you're doing on that beat. And he definitely did. And it was very refreshing for me. We had done the first cover on Snoop in 93. So I felt a strong sense of deja vu listening to this young man doing what he did on that track. And I took him to the side after he did his group presentation. I just said, you know, keep doing what you're doing. We're going to give you all the strength that we can. And he got his page in Vibe Magazine, which was something he had long wanted to do and overcame all obstacles till he achieved that goal. When did you decide to start pursuing the book project? It was after the Victory Lab album rollout when he came to Mass Appeal to do an on-camera interview. I had paid attention to Nip's movement all along. We intersected on a couple of other occasions just through media coverage that I was working on at Complex as well. And But when it came to the Victory Lap album, I said, you know, we've got to get him up to the office. We've got to get him to do an interview. He's so brilliant. And he booked an interview at 9.30 in the morning, which is, you know, the earliest any rapper has ever set an interview. <laughs> and actually showed up, right? Well, the crew at Massachusetts was a little grouchy. Like, do, is he really going to be on time? Do we have to be there set up at 930? Because they have to set up the lights and camera even before that. But he was 10 minutes early and he sipped his green tea and sat down and we talked for over an hour. And I walked out of that interview, really a changed person. And I wasn't the only one who had experiences like that, talking with Nip. 
he had a great story to tell and he told his story very patiently and clearly, but he also would ask you about what you were doing, what your five-year plan was, and made me think about the fact that the rules of the industry were not made by creative people. They were made by business people who want to extract the maximum value from creative people because they know that artists are going to want to make art, whether or not they're being fairly compensated for it. They do it for a passion first, and then they need to survive. Nip did not want to be a starving artist. It wasn't an option for him, right? He had to survive. He studied how the the rules had been formulated to exploit creatives. And speaking with him about that made me think about my own life and my own choices that I'd made. You know, I was at Vibe for 17 years. I was on the startup staff of Vibe and one of the most thrilling adventures of my life. But on the day that the bank repossessed Vibe and the venture capitalists shut it down, I was asked to stand up from my desk and walk out to the elevator by armed guards. And I walked out of there having no idea what I was going to do next. And, you know, I made a decision. This was actually before my interview with Nip that I needed to own my own platform and start to think about things differently. Speaking with him around the Victory Lap album was a game changer for me. And that was the moment when I said, you know, this is way more than a five minute interview for YouTube. I have a responsibility to tell this man's story in a way that I have a unique perspective on. And I mean, when I really thought about it, there weren't any decent magazine profiles written with the exception of the wonderful GQ piece that focuses on Lauren London and Nip's relationship and tell some of the backstory. There weren't those real in-depth profiles of someone whose story was so fascinating, so inspiring on so many levels. He'd done a lot of YouTube interviews, a lot of video chats with big outlets, with radio stations, with around-the-way video bloggers, but he didn't do those in-depth profiles. And so this book is my contribution as a music journalist just to lay the foundation for the future. I'm sure there'll be many books and many things written and, and discussed about Nipsey's life and legacy, but this is me trying to lay the first bricks of the pyramid. When you started going out to talk about the book before he died, I assume, with publishers or agents or professionals, what was the reaction from them? I imagine they didn't know who you were talking about. Yeah, it was a hard sell. It was a hard sell. And, you know, the process of education. And as the title of the book says, the marathon don't stop. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know. <laughs> you live that. Yeah. If you've ever written a book or worked on a, a big project, you know that it's a test of stamina and endurance. I couldn't have had a better, more inspiring subject in my headphones around the clock, listening to his music, listening to his interviews. It was literally a symbiotic relationship almost, you know, that he was helping me keep going to tell a story that I hoped would further his legacy and make more people understand why he was so important. The title, Victory Lap, makes it feel as though the marathon is over. And in fact, that's what happened soon after the release of that album, which to me is an amazing piece of work. It's a brilliant, genius album. But isn't that so prophetic at the same time as he's making his victory lap is when he's cut down? 
Well, he he didn't expect to be cut down. I don't think he prophesied. His no, demise. I didn't mean that. But I just yeah. saying, you know, naming it victory lap. The marathon is kind of never over, or if you're declaring it over because it's the victory lap. So, well, like what's think next? Of, think of someone like Mario Andretti. You know, he's had many victory laps <laughs> and continues okay. to run new races. And you know, it was definitely the completion of a cycle. He had marathon mixtape. The marathon continues. And then victory lap was meant to be kind of the final victory after that journey. And this is him announcing, okay, now I have gained enough leverage in the game to negotiate with a major label and have enough power to demand the terms that I believe are not rapacious and exploitative. He had very mixed emotions about dealing with major labels, but he realized that it was not possible to get on mainstream radio and get into the big arenas, the game was sealed up to prevent independent artists from reaching that level. And he tried as best he could for a long time to do it without them. But once he realized it was necessary, you know, it's a competitive sport and you don't become a rapper to be the best underdog. You want to be that guy. And he was honest and open about that. And so it was necessary to partner with Atlantic, but he had plans that went way beyond that. He had a record that was going to be called Exit Strategy, where he was going to become basically Master P. Calls himself the No Limit of the West on Victory Lap. And, you know, artists like Master P, Jay Prince from Rap-A-Lot, E-40 from the Bay Area was sick with it. Those people that built completely independent empires were his ultimate inspiration. I spoke with Master P in this book. I spoke with Rick Ross, who tried to get Nip to sign with Maybach Music Group. Everybody said the same thing. You know, he was ahead of his time. He was determined to do it his way. And with all respect, he wasn't willing to sign with Rick Ross as much as they respected one another because the terms of the deal just weren't advantageous enough for him and his whole team. That's the kind of person Nip was. The victory lap was just one step. He was about to start putting out artists from his circle. He was going to do a record with Jay Stone. He was going to do a record with Pac-Man. He was going to do records with Cuzzy and Killatuan and his circle of artists that had been rocking with him for a long time. And I was blessed to be able to speak with all of them and they shared their stories with me. It's painful to think of what might have been. Today, Pac-Man is releasing a song called Zero Tolerance featuring Nipsey and Mozzie. So in that way, the music is still coming out. The artists that Nip identified as important are still inspired by him and carrying on his message and building their own waves, their own businesses. They're doing their own proud to pay and merch lines. And so the blueprint is very much being emulated and the marathon don't stop. You mentioned FDT, which stands for Fuck Donald Trump, yep. that when that song came out, it, it led to an, a visit from the FBI, was it? The Secret Service. The Secret Service, who yeah. were afraid that this would, you know, I don't know what they were afraid of exactly, but they were intimidating, obviously trying to intimidate him in some ways, not to perform the song, to do whatever he could to squelch that song. Right. And then not that long after, right, there came the murder. And you mentioned earlier Fred Hampton, and other people who had been cut down over the years. Right. Typically leaders who were more than just protesters, they actually had a plan and a program 
in mind that would make a difference. And even with Nipsey, you mentioned some of the other people who he was talking with regard to bias, buy it back, right? Yep. Was that the program, Bias Back? Every time you have a leader in a black community who's like actually making waves, they seem to be cut down, right? And I know at the end of your book, you explore some of these ideas, the conspiracy ideas of, of what happened, of why he was eliminated the way he was. I'm sure there are informants in these organizations, right? The Bloods and the Crips. That's how they operate. They're always informants. You mentioned an incident where he's talking with someone and saying, you better be careful because there's talk on the street that you had flipped in some way and cooperating with the authorities. So all of that, you know, as conspiracy people do, they put a lot of little pieces together and try to make like a big story out of it. But it just begs the question for me, I'm sure we'll never be able to get the true answer, just like we don't know the whole Martin Luther King story or the JFK story or Tupac. Is that anywhere in the back of your mind sitting that there might have been some concerted effort to go cut him down in a way because he was such a growing influence? Well, like I said, this book is about a triumph and not a tragedy. And I was determined to not use words like death or anything in the title or anywhere. And it's just not the focus of the book. There's so much life and legacy to focus on that it's like the least interesting part of the book to me. I include as much as is known and can be verified just because it's important to document the truth but I'm not trying to solve the case. I'm just drawing comparisons that on his record says, young Malcolm, I'm the leader at this thing. And he called himself the Tupac of his generation. He referenced the Panthers in his music. He referenced COINTELPRO in his music. So he was aware of the environment that he was operating in. And it is documented that the person who took his life was a member of, or at least a former member of the set. It's a terrible thing. If you listen to Nip's music, he talks about the kind of betrayal that goes on in Three Life, and he fell victim to that same situation. I will not speculate on what actually happened, but as I say in the book, I believe that the investigation has been very narrow. They have a shooter in custody who has yet to actually stand trial due to COVID, I guess. And it's possible he'll never stand trial. It's possible some plea deal will be reached or, you know, he was taken into custody at a mental health facility. So maybe he'll plead insanity. I don't know. But were other people involved? That will always be open to conjecture. The internet is filled with some pretty far-flung theories, which I don't try to unpack much, but I, I did want to provide the historical context. And and you've pointed out a few threads that are definitely relevant ones. Incredible people have, have uh, wondered about also. My focus is on his life and his legacy. To me, it, it needs to be compared to people like Malcolm X, whose murder is still unsolved. A lot of people have ideas about what happened there. And Fred Hampton, we saw the film, that's better documented than most. So Nip is definitely one of those iconic cultural figures whose legacy is going to live on for a long time. Well, the marathon don't stop, but this podcast has to end. 
So thank you very much, Rob Kenner, for meeting with me today and sharing your thoughts and, and congratulations on your important book. Thanks so much for your time, David. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopverb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopverb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.